Before we get to the podcast this week, did you know that Flow Racing is your home for over 1,200 live racing events? That includes the Chili Bowl, the World 100, the Dream, the Wild West Shootout, the Short Track Super Series, USAC, the Flow Racing All-Star Circuit of Champions, the IRA Sprint Cars, Drag Racing, tons of drag racing. We're also in pavement now, too, by the way, as we go. Thunder Road, which is home of the Milk Bowl, and a lot more pavement coming soon. The value for $150 a year is so good. It's almost comical how good it is. Remember also, if you've got a Dirt on Dirt subscription, you get a Flow Racing account for free with it, as if the deal wasn't good enough already. And I really mean this next part. DOD and Flow together really are changing Short track racing forever, not only with that amazing subscription price that I talked about, but the wealth of content that you get with it. And the fact that many of these races are happening in front of online audiences that are literally never before seen in our sport. When you have that many different disciplines of motorsports under one subscription banner, you get a crossover audience that is big and huge numbers watching these broadcasts unheard of in short track racing we're doing things that no one else is doing and it's honestly it's it's, it truly is really exciting yes i'm a homer yes i work for the company but that does not mean i am not right flow in dod changing grassroots racing we're pretty cool people too okay let's go and most importantly welcome to dirtondirt.com This is your Rigsby Report for the week of June 28th. That had a little time off in early June. We had the dream at Eldora, obviously took a lot of our attention. I was at the Flow offices in Austin, Texas for about a week. Uh, But for sure, I wanted to get at least one Rigsby Report in this month. And I'm not only glad we are, but I'm really glad that it's Mark Richards. I've always said that the Mount Rushmore of dirt late model racing is C.J. Rayburn, Earl Baltus, Billy Moyer, and Scott Bloomquist. It's those four guys. But if I had to chisel in a fifth spot on the rock on the Mount Rushmore of of dirt late model racing, it could be Mark Richards. And the funny part about this is I know there are people listening to this and they're saying the following. Rigsby, you're saying this because Mark and Rocket, they're an advertiser with dirt on dirt, blah, 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 blah. Or they might be saying, Rigsby, I don't think Mark is that great. He always has the best stuff, best equipment, blah, blah, blah. The people that say those things don't really know Mark Richards. If you like hardworking MFers who literally started from the bottom and built their way all the way to the top, then you'll love Mark. If you like the true definition of the American success story, then you'll like Mark. Now, I'll admit, listen, Mark Mark can be prickly. And I'll also admit, Mark is going to make sure that he's looking out for Rocket and his team and his family, which he should, by the way. Some people have said that he puts you know, those interests above the sport, which we'll talk about with him in this podcast. But I will tell you this because I know it firsthand. Mark Richards has done as much for dirt late model racing as anybody. He's not perfect, but if you're going to war and dirt late model racing is on one side and there's some other enemy on the other, trust me. We want Mark Richards in our corner. And you know that part about him doing what's in his best self-interest. Usually what's in his self-interest is what's in the sport's self-interest. So I don't really buy into that argument. We talk about everything from Josh leaving the team 
to his position in the history of dirt late model racing to Brandon Overton and the traction control debate at Eldora. We talk about all of that in a really good nearly two-hour interview. Uh, one thing, too, he was in the pits at Lernerville. We recorded this on the Thursday of the Firecracker 100 and his phone was was pretty good to start, and then people started rolling in in the day, and his phone got a little spotty. He moved, and it gets better. So overall, though, you can really understand him and hear him, so it's not too big of a deal. So I, I don't have much to add before, Mark. I want to get right to it with the mayor of Dirt Late Model Racing, Mark Richards. I have kicked around doing this podcast with Mark for a while now, but we never really had the right time or circumstance for it. But then after all the stuff that happened at Eldora, not only with Brandon Overton's historic four-win weekend, but the fact that the traction control rumors were flying around and everybody, of course, is asking Mark Richards what he thinks about it, he and I both kind of decided, you know what, this, this feels like the good time to do this. So he joins me now, Mark Richards, on the Rigsby Report on the Integra Shocks and Springs Hotline. Mark, I obviously have a ton to talk to you about. But let's start with what I just mentioned since it sparked our entire conversation. And I'll just kind of timeline it from where I sit. Brandon Overton wins the first two nights at Eldora. The rumors of traction control are running through the pits. I think, you know, maybe even you at first thought, hey, I wonder what's going on with this car. What's up with this car? But then I talked to you after Saturday night, and you made a point to pull me aside and said, forget traction control. This kid is unbelievably good. You actually told me you'd bet $10,000 that his car came back legal. So take me through that. Did you think he was using something early in the weekend? How did you arrive at the conclusion that he wasn't? Because I know you felt that way on Saturday. And, and just in general, Mark, how many people asked you about it at El Tora? Take me through all of that if you could. Well, it started long before El Those rumors um, were floating around. Uh, floating around um, for, I'm going to say, a few months, maybe a longer, um, that there's some guys fooling with traction control. And I just kind of don't pay any attention to it. You know, I, I mean, you hear all kinds of stuff. You know, when we were, when Brandon was winning all of them races back in 19, you know, people were saying traction control, um cell phone controlled shocks yeah. and I'm like they're get, they're giving us way more credit than they need to <laughs> you know but anyhow um, what happened at Eldora was after the Thursday night when I started getting all these texts through the night and then you know I'm like and I started getting links you know where the stuff could be bought and which I knew kind of knew of the stuff uh just because the history goes back a long way with it, um, with with the guy at, out of Nazareth, PA, um, back in the 90s, Rick Gross called me and said, hey, this guy at Racetronics is going to give you two traction controls. And I said, for what? And he said, um, well, he's going to sponsor the series, and we're going to make them legal. I said, do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> and this is Rick Gross with stars for those at home that may yeah, not Rick, know, right? Uh, Rick Gross, yeah. And I said, how much does it cost to sponsor the series? And he said, 6000 I said, okay. I'll sponsor you for 6000 and I'm going to build roof wings 
off of sprint cars. Are you going to let us race them? <laughs> and he's like, no, you can't race them. And I said, well, I don't understand what we're doing here. So I did a little bit of research. And actually, the guy from Racetronics called me. He doesn't really like me because I kind of got that shot down. But my belief is that it's no, it has no place in this sport. With that being said, we went through an ordeal about 2003 with, with Dale, when Dale was running a rocket car. And it was a big deal over traction control that wasn't even there. I mean, we had tested with a little timing device that Davis Technologies had. And we'd been working with the Habitampa series, trying to figure out whether it was legal or it wasn't legal. And the night that all the stuff that went down with Dale McDowell, I can promise you, he did not have it. Because I wouldn't put it in a car in a race condition because it was not legal. So with that said, what happened at Eldora? Uh, I walked out of the motorhome on Friday morning, and there was literally three crew members <laughs> from team standing at my door in between my trailer waiting on me to come out and they're you know telling me stuff and 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 with the and everything and i i'm like look i can't believe the guy's doing it but who knows in today's world you know the best thing to do is to check it that's the best thing whenever there was any doubt what we were doing i had no problem checking my car because I wanted everybody to know that we were legal. And, you know, we've been in that barn up there. That wasn't the first time cars were put in that barn. They put us in that barn in 2016 when Dennis Herb won. Brandon ran second, and Dale McDowell ran third. And we was in that barn for two hours. So it's not the first time that it happened. So how do you go, Mark, from... And I know, you, like you said, who knows, right? And then I see you Saturday, and you tell me, okay, man, I've watched this dude. There's no way. And this is before the teardown well, Saturday night. What what made you get to that point where you knew nothing? Friday was- night, Friday night, I watched him in that preliminary race. And I'm like, this track's too fast for traction to control to be any advantage to you. You know, the track was faster. Yeah. And I watched him, and then during the race on Saturday, I watched him, and I I kind of figured out a little bit about what he's doing, but it's more with him than it is the car. Uh, his car is really good. Nobody's saying his car's not good, but he's doing a really good job of understanding how to drive in that condition. And, you know, it goes back to when Scott dominated up there. Scott did a great job. I mean, uh, I feel like Scott won a lot of those races because he was that much better, doing a better job driving than everybody else. You And I think Brandon has kind of focused on how Scott was up there and, and – Dale McDowell's another guy, and Billy Moyer's another guy. Those guys don't hammer the cushion. Those guys don't tear their tires off. I mean, Brandon Overton is incredible. I talked to him on Sunday on his way home. He was driving home, and, you know, I congratulated him because Brandon and I, we're friends beyond the chassis thing. It's, you know, 
uh, when he had our cars, we'd become friends and we're still friends. Um, he knows he can come and ask me for anything and I can ask him for anything and, and we're truthful with each other. And I just had a hard time believing that it was, but I, I told him on Sunday, I said, look, you shut everybody up. That's all needed to happen. Let them tech the car and shut up because if they didn't tech the car, could you imagine what the rumors would oh, be? Oh, it, it, it would go that le- that legend would live on forever, right? The rumor and the legend would literally never stop. And I think no, it would have been those races were won. He had traction. Look, they tech the car. He didn't have it. Yep, get over it. The guy beat everybody. And you know what? The, one interesting subplot of this whole thing to me, and I think it's undeniable. You mentioned the three crew members waiting for for you. You're the mayor of the sport. <laughs> when something of substance happens in dirt late model racing, people come find you, people call you, people text you. They want your opinion maybe more than anybody else in the industry. And I don't want you to disagree with me there, Mark, because that is a simple fact that I think you know it's true. Having said all that, do you love that or do you hate that? Do you like being the mayor or do you <laughs> hate being the the unofficial unvoted mayor, which is what you are? Do you love it or hate it? I don't think any mayor likes to be the mayor when there's (laughs) controversy uh, or trouble. But, you know, I've always felt like I owed it to the sport to try to do what was right and try to help it. Um, You know, there's all kinds of people out there say Mark Richards is only worried about Mark Richards. Look, this is how I tell people. If it's good for me, it's good for everybody else. Because... If, if it's a tire rule or a body rule or whatever it may be, suspension rule, whatever, uh, if in the long run, if it makes the work better, it's better for me. It's better for everybody. It's better for Dirt on Dirt, Flow, World of Outlaw, Lucas, whoever. That's what I'm for. I'm not – look, this sport's been good to me. I'm 48 years in. So it's not like – I, I, you know, I could retire tomorrow, but I'm not ready to retire. So, you know, it's not like I'm out here trying to connive or deceive somebody to get something that's with me. I want the sport to continue. And I don't want to be called the mayor. I, I, I don't want to be in the politics. I want to be none of that. But, you know, there is over the years back, you know, clear back when we started the Dirty Dozen. I mean, it was all the time. I mean, everybody got together and kind of would me and say, hey, this is what we need to do. and Or, hey, you need to see if we can get this done. And then I'd go represent those drivers. I want to rip the so, bait. Yeah, it, maybe ambassador is a better title, but people come to you, right? <laughs> That's the point is, you know this as well as I do. Everybody's coming to you. So, I, shit, I do it. If there's a, there's something I want to understand more, I'm coming to you. So I'm as guilty as anybody. Um, maybe we need to come up with a new title, Mark. Maybe mayor is not the right title. <laughs> maybe we need a different I don't one. like mayor. <laughs> I don't like mayor, but, you know, I, I just like to feel like, I'm helping keeping this thing going, you know, because you got to realize I started in 1973 and I've seen, I've seen a lot of stuff. When I say started, I started working on cars in 1973. I was 13 years old. So I've seen a lot of stuff evolve over, over time. And, you know, clear back to the NDRA days, 
you know, uh, clear back to some of the first World 100s, clear back to the first Dirt Track World Championship. You know, I was there. I was through all of that. And, you know, sometimes uh, younger guys can't see where we need to go, you know, or, or what the path really is. And, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's, I feel like I've been a little bit of a part of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, the group, when we did that in 2004 or 2003, 2004, the first world Outlaw group, that was incredible to get 12 drivers and teams to come together and create what we created. I feel like, you know, Scott and I was a big part of that. Well, you know, the other hot topic that is kind of surrounding you these days, you know, last year, Brandon Shepard in the Rocket House car uh, wins 22 races in the Rocket House car alone. Brandon won 31 overall, 22 in the house car. Uh, It is almost July 4th. I'm fast forwarding a little. We're a week out. Uh, We're recording this on the Thursday of Lernerville. It's almost July 4th. You guys have four wins. So I'm just going to ask it. You know, for some teams, four wins wouldn't be bad. For you, that's not great. So I'm just going to ask you, why are you struggling this year? Honest answers only here. Why is this team not performing at the level it has in years past as we approach July? I don't think it's struggle. I went a learning season. We started the season off in Florida. It was not really a normal season in Florida. Uh, It was way wetter than normal. And our cars, we hadn't worked on the wet, running the cushion, um, as much as we'd been working on um, other things. And we got caught a little bit off guard in Florida. And then I went back to Florida and tested. And we got a whole lot in that condition. But now we're back out here and we're kind of in between you know, we catch ourselves sometimes um, on the wrong program where for five years we ran the same program. Contrary to what anybody believed, uh, that car was pretty much the same every week for five years. And three and a half million dollars later, you know, we're at a point where we need to work on some things. Um, I feel like we're making headway. You know, we tested last night at Sharon, which that definitely was not, you know, a wet condition. Um, and I feel like getting getting everybody to understand, not not just me, but Brandon and the crew to understand what we got to do to be better. Uh, it's it's not as simple as just say, hey, we're going to change the setup and everything's going to be great. You know, the driver, and that's what I say Brandon Olsen has done. He understands. He uh, he gets it. He gets. You ever see that guy run a cushion anymore? Uh, it's true, and he used to that always. Guy. And he used to always run the cushion, right? <laughs> well, he used to, but that guy never runs the cushion. And to win today and be there in these long races, you got to realize we led the first sixty laps of that first Thursday night yeah, race. Yeah. And and the last forty laps, Brandon Overton was the dominant car. And it's because of these tire rules have a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, we're, we're constantly at 
some point during the night, we're on the right tire, but the majority of the night we're on the wrong tire. Right. And you take care of your tires. And, you know, that's another thing. Our programs have been pretty much elbows up, not so much in the mud, but in the slicker stuff. I mean, we ran pretty hard in that slicker stuff, you know, over the last five years. You know, I think the the racing history story of Mark Richards has been told before, but but I, I kind of want you to give it to us again for those that might not know. I, you know, I, I've heard the things from you know, it was your brother who bought a race car and that kind of got you into dirt late model racing. You know, there's that famous kind of story that your father told you you'll never make a living in dirt late model or in racing, right? Just take me through that, Mark. There's a lot of people. You know, the, the viewership numbers on these are incredible. Um, Take us through that, sort of the racing history of Mark Richards and the genesis of how you got started in this whole thing, and especially hit on that line where your dad tell, told you, you'll never make it in this, in this industry. Well, you know, I grew up in a small mining town, and, you know, my dad had, my mom and dad had me late in life. You know, they were like 40 and 44. So, you know, I kind of grew up with, like, grandparents. But my dad had already been through racing in the 50s. And, uh, his cars were, you know, from what I have heard and seen pictures of, they won all kinds of races, but back in those days, they was racing for like a hundred dollars, you know, they were the old coupes and, um, he had a, a coal mining company and they would go racing like four or five nights a week and they'd work all day and then go racing at night you know, and just get home from the race and go back in the coal mines and work and then go back to a race. Well, he pretty much broke, him and my uncle pretty much broke the families. <laughs> so my dad loved racing. He, my dad was a really cool guy. He was a hard worker and he loved racing. So they built a little track there across the street from us, I-79 Speedway. And my dad did the dirt work and kind of most of the work to get the track built. And I was a little four-year-old kid running around, you know. Uh, and it's right across the street from where my shop is now. And anyhow, my dad took me to the short tracks around there, and we'd sit in the grandstands, and he'd say, look, you don't ever want to get into racing because you can't make a living, you know. And that's what, he worried a lot about making a living. He came from the Depression. and yeah. You know, he was one of them old guys that, you know, worried all the time about every dollar. And my brother was five years older than me, and he was gung-ho to get a race car because it was in his blood, too. And my dad used to take me to Heidelberg, which was an asphalt track, which all the equipment now that's at PMS was at Heidelberg when I was a kid. Uh, The press box the bleachers, the lights, everything. All that was at Heidelberg. It was an asphalt track. I didn't know that. Well, I did not know that, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I got a souvenir that the Heidelberg, it, it's a little south of Pittsburgh on 79, of the picture, and you can you can see all the PMS. So my dad used to be there back in the 50s. And he would go up there and race, clear up to Pittsburgh. It'd take him four or five hours to get up there. Takes me an hour and a half to get there. But anyhow, uh, he would take me there, and that was our favorite place to go was an asphalt track. And and I was just a kid in temperatures, but I was really interested. And the green papers would come in from Michigan. Uh, Ed Howe 
and he'd always have some other driver like Tommy Meyer or somebody would come and drive the other car, and they would win all the time. So I was probably 10 years old, and and I had interest. I was watching these cars, you know. And my brother, he comes home one day and says, and and I my I grew up. My dad was building a trailer park because his health was bad, and he was trying to get something for the family to live off of. Because sure. here I am, a young ten, twelve years old, and my dad's my dad's fifty, and he, you know his heart and all that stuff's bad. And, you know they're telling him he's got six months to live and all that. So he's trying to build something for my mother to, to raise me. You know, so I'm working on the trailer park at nine, ten years old, and and. Uh, helping him and trying to get this thing built and and i can weld cut build whatever you know by the time i was 10 12 years old i was going all and anyhow we're at heidelberg watching these cars and i was just amazed that these green cars from michigan would come in and win everything (laughs) well long story short my brother gets a car and we start racing and and he says you're going to take care of it well i didn't i'd never been around a race car you know 13 years old and he buys this old car, and then he gets us a better car. And and we went through the transition of we ended up down with Clint Smith's dad when I was like 14. And they built us some cars, Roscoe Smith did. And there was a guy there that worked for him that my brother lured to come back home and build cars for us. How did you and make I that, worked. Mark? How did you make that connection though? Clinton, those guys are down by Atlanta. You guys are up in West Virginia, just on the road somewhere. You ran into well, my brother. My brother watched racing. Like, we went to Eldora all the time. And, okay. and he knew that those Georgia cars was making the transition back uh, okay. in the day with Doug, with Doug Kennermer and Charlie Hughes and yeah. all those guys. And my brother figured out where we could buy a Southern car from. <laughs> okay. And we bought a car from from Roscoe Smith. And uh, wow. my brother lured to build cars to come to West Virginia. And his name was Buddy Parker. And Buddy was, he was, a, 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 I mean, a a heck of a craftsman that could walk in a junkyard and get this frame around, get this front clip and get this spindle. And I worked with him for two years in West Virginia. But anyhow, but back to Georgia and I, there I am building cars at like 15, 16 years old. And this little shop down the hill from my dad's house. Well, my brother, yeah. He buys a car, and I met Barry Wright when I was like 16 or 17. <laughs> and Barry was welding at a place called Rim and Wheelhouse in Spartansburg, South Carolina. I remind him of it all the time. But he was welding for a guy named Fred Painter that built a car, a chassis, which was a really good car. I ended up with one of them cars, and they were good cars. But my brother decided it was time he was moving out of West Virginia because the coal business was getting bad, and he was in the coal business, and he wanted to move to Alabama, and I didn't want to move. And this guy named J.D. Stacy walks through the door, which I didn't know who J.D. Stacy was. I, I mean, I knew he was somebody big, but just the presence he made coming through the door. And he's the guy that sponsored all those cup cars back in the day, um, there was like 10 or 11 one year at Daytona. He had Yarborough, Neil Bonnet. Uh, and he was the guy that actually bought the two car that Earnhardt drove before he went to Childers. And I had a chance to go do that. Because Stacy bought my brother's team out, took me to work for him. And long story short, there was a guy named David Spears driving for my brother. 
he drove two races and he quit. And there I was with all this stuff that I built and, you know, got from different people, uh, like the rim and Lewis car we had it. So he said, get any driver you want to drive it. And I said, well, I got it narrowed down to two. And he said, who is it? And he said, Rodney Combs and, and Buck Simmons. Buck Simmons was a friend of mine that won tons of races through the South. And Rodney had drove for my brother, and we had a heck of a relationship. And I called Rodney, and I said, look, I'm going to come and drive this stuff. They seem to have plenty of money. Uh, come on, check it out. So he drove over to West Virginia, checked it out. Next thing I knew, Rodney says, okay, we can do it, but we have to run how cars. And that was probably the best thing that happened to me was getting that relationship with Ed Howe, Herb Brand, and the people at Howe Racing. Because they took me in, and I took, I'm 19 years, 18, 19 years old, 19 years old, and I'm crew chief in Ed Howe's dirt program with Rodney Combs driving, you know, and I get to work and I get to work with the best guy in the business. He had my, he had the model that I created for my own business. He had it back in the seventies. And, uh, anyhow, I got to work with Ed and I learned a lot from Ed. And the thing that the reason I did any people Ed would would pull with and that was the guy remember those green cars i walked a kid as a kid i am now crew chief on that car yeah this this green five car you know uh, we eventually converted them to white we, they were white cars and space sponsoring this but anyhow that experience at Howes, those six years i spent with ed and herb and herb was herb brand from brand transmission he was part. He was in with Ed at that time, and I learned. And Herb and I are still really good friends. And uh, when did you make the transition to Bullet, then, Mark? Because obviously, and by the way, for those listening at home right now, Mark is the names that Mark has been involved with since he's been thirteen or fourteen. This would be like if you were a music fan in England in the 1950s and 60s. And we're like, yeah, then I went over to this club and John Lennon was there. And then Paul McCartney was over here. I don't think I can, ex- oh, yeah. I don't think I can express to this, to people listening at home, Ed Howe, Buck Simmons, all these people that Mark has rubbed elbows with in his young life. I just wanted to point that out, how incredible that is. And then when did the transition to bullet? Cause you know, Ed Howe, legendary name. Before you start Rocket, though, you're working with Bullet and Ray Callahan, another legendary chassis builder name. When, when did that transition from Ed to, to, to Bullet and Ray Callahan happen, Mark? Well, what happened was, you remember when Jim Dunn got killed? Yeah, 82, 81 or 82, Dirt Track World Championship. Yep, yep. I actually put that car together. Oh, wow. And we were involved in that wreck. Rodney and Jack Boggs. I was crew chief on Rodney's car. And uh, that was a bad day. That was probably one of the worst days in my racing life was the day that Jim got killed. Uh, we weren't going to go to that race. We ran Eldor the night before. And back then, you didn't have social media. You didn't have no way to communicate. And we heard they got rained out in Paducah. It was an NBRA show. And we made a couple phone calls. I think we actually called Terry English's dad because they were who we kind of knew down there. And uh, we drove from Eldor overnight to Paducah. 
and we pulled in there and it was a dusty old day and uh, Jim was there and Jim come over and helped us. I mean, he, we were getting unloaded because we were late and Jim was there hanging out and that was really a bad day on me because, you know, I, this guy was like family to us. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the, the wreck happened. I, I mean, I hate to even think about it. I didn't go back to Paducah, Kentucky for 20 years. It was 20 years before I stepped foot wow. back in that track. But anyhow, Ed kind of got uh, distant with the late mo- with the dirt deal. He wanted to concentrate on his pavement because with Jim getting killed, he felt like he didn't want anything to do with dirt. Yeah. And that put us to where I'm back to building my own or building cars, which I was building cars at WRC. It was a company that was our company name. Uh, originally, the guy's name was Dick White and my name and Rodney Combs's name, but we changed it later to winning race cars after we bought him out. But those red five cars, that, that those pictures all over the Internet, if you look up Rodney Combs, yeah, you'll see yeah. them cars that I, that I built back in the days. And you got to realize those cars were hand built. I mean, I people talk today about building cars, and I'm thinking you don't even understand how hard it was to build a work <laughs> that it took and the hours that it took to build a car and and to go even to a race. It, you know, here you are in a, in a dually pickup, and and the stuff we have today, like these crew guys, they don't know how good they have it compared to. I kind of say the pioneers that came up through, you know, that kind of brought this sport to where it is. But, uh, when Ed kind of 1984, I won't forget. I was up there one day and he said, I'm done with this dirt stuff. And that was kind of it with Ed. He didn't want nothing to do with it. So we went to building our own stuff again, um, pretty much full board to see stuff. And then I got married in five and I was going to work at, eight o'clock in the morning and coming home at one o'clock in the morning and three minutes, you know, and, and just got married. So I kind of knew I couldn't keep up at this pace and go racing on the weekend. And, uh, because we were from customer stuff all day and we had a lot of customers at WRC. And then I would work on our stuff like five, six o'clock in the evening. I'd start working on the stuff for Rodney. And uh, it just wasn't going to work for me being married. So I walked in one day and told Rodney, I said, look, I, I want to sell out. I don't have the company, and I'm 26 years old, 25 or 26 at the time. And Rodney wasn't happy. <laughs> By the time I got home, I'd made him a, a reasonable deal. I, I thought it was really fair because I just, I, I felt bad that I was walking away, but I just couldn't keep up. And, um, by the time I got home, he called my mom and I think my mom and dad's house. I got back to the house there and, and my dad come and found me and he said, Hey, Rodney called, you need to call him. So anyhow, I told out to him and then I, I kind of said to heck with this race. You know, I can't be married and, and live this long, but it's what I love. You know, I love racing. My dad kind of got me hooked on it, but he'd always say, you can't make a living doing it. (laughs) 
you know. So uh, I, I'm like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. I had enough. I had a little bit of money, and I, I'm going to take the summer and just figure it out, you know. So these people named the Smiths. I don't know whether you ever heard of them. It was Eddie Burrow and Mike Smith um, from Parkersburg, and they were a big pipeline company, and they had rocket cars, and they had well, whatever they wanted. They bought everything in the world, but anyhow. They got a hold of us and they said, look, come down here and work two days a week. We'll pay you for a full week's salary on the pipeline. And I'm like, okay, I can drive to Parkersburg for two days a week. It's only like hour and 10 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. So I did that. And then Baker had bought cars from us at WRC. Well, Steve and I were really good friends and, uh, there was another guy named Denny Angelicchio that Steve drove for. They got a hold of me and they said, hey, how about going racing with us when you're not going with the Smiths? So I started going and then Steve, he had a he bought a bullet car and he said, hey, Ray Callahan wants me and you to go in business and sell bullet cars. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to do this. You know, but uh Anyhow, that was in 1986. My dad gave me an acre of ground. He just bought a big piece of, oh, well, a nice chunk of land over there on 79, which we own now, but uh, where our shop is. And he gave me an acre of ground, and I built a little 40 by 80 building, 50 by 80, 50 by 80 building. Really didn't have any money. We were, uh, Steve and I were as broke as broke gets. He, he left <laughs> He left the transmission shop, and his wife was working at the hospital, and my wife was working at a bank, and and we didn't have anything. You know, it was bad. So we started selling these bullet cars and started doing pretty good. We would go pick three up at a time, bring them back, complete them, and then a few weeks later go back and get three more. Yeah. And we were selling 100 of them a year, maybe 125, which was good. You know, we were doing really good. And Ray and I... You know, uh, he was happy. You know, everything was going good with Ray. And then Masterbuilt came out, and the bullet thing kind of went a little bit south. And and um, I went to Eldora in 1991 with a guy named Rodney Franklin, which, I mean, uh, Ray had convinced me to take we had a car that Steve and I both drove a little bit and Dave Drain. I rented a motor from Dave Drain. That's what we used. I had a really good engine in it. And I had a really good car and I'd won races in it at Elkins and Steve had drove it a little bit at PMS and Ray had convinced me to put Rodney Franklin in this car at Eldora. And Rodney is a great driver. Not taking nothing away from Rodney, but we go to Eldora and he's all tensed up because he really wants to run good. And he wrecks his car in hot laps. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I got no parts. Like, you know, I'm I'm just got enough money and enough to get the car there. And it's a rented motor. And it totals this car. And anyhow, I, I had enough friends in the pits. Robbie Allen's dad, Mike Duvall, all these guys were bringing me parts. Very right. They were bringing me parts to put this car back together. Well, I missed the first round of qualifying, but I got it ready for the second round of qualifying and had to weld part of the frame rail back in it, put the leaf spring suspension back under it, 
all the right front suspension tore off. The dry sump tanks tore out. You know, his cars just tore up. I get it back together, and he qualifies 12 fastest. And that's when race cars were starting to go the wrong way, and the master builds were coming on. Yeah. Scott was there then. Scott was, you know, the guy. The black 18, the master's built, the whole thing, right? Yeah. 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 And, and anyhow, we made the race. We ran, they inverted six. We ran third in our heat. And we ended up getting whacked. And Ray walked over and he said, I owe you a car. And I said, well, here's the deal, Ray. I don't want a standard car. We need to make some changes. And I told him the ideas I had. He wasn't real happy about them. Uh, But I said, you know, the things that I felt like needed to be changed... But I said, I don't want a standard car because that's what I want to build. He said, I'll tell you what. You tell me exactly what you want and I'll build it. And I said, okay. So Balzano, Mike Balzano was a good friend of mine and raced with me all the time. He was like my brother. And Mike said, get two of them because I want one too. So we built, we got two frames built, went and picked them up. I put them together. Rodney Franklin, I take him to Winchester, Virginia, and he's driving away, and he crashes his thing, knocks the front clip off. The Winchester 200. He's lapping cars and knocks the front clip off. So I took it back and fixed the clip. We fixed the clip ourselves. It was just me and Steve and Scott, the boy that, that welds the cars up. And um, anyhow, I get it fixed, and I'm like, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> so Dave Johnson had just got back from running the bush stuff down there. He went down and tried to run bush and he had been on me about wanting to drive. And I said, okay, we'll go to West Virginia motor speedway. You want to drive? We'll go. So we take the car and go to West Virginia motor speedway. And they had two stars renegades that day. He won both of them with that car. And uh, Mike Balzana rest and third. And, and I had people coming to me. They wanted cars. They seen that the car was different. So and this car. and this is basically the birth of Rocket, right? This is ninety one. This is leaving Ray. Yep. This is leaving Ray on the Rocket. Yep. This is and, basically. And, the, and what was the line? I think was it Davy Johnson that said this thing runs like a rocket, and that's where the name Rocket chassis yeah. came from. Is that right? <laughs> well, what happened was Ray calls me on Monday, and my intentions was to still build these cars as bullets. Yeah. That we never had the intention to go in business as Rocket. We was Mark Richards Racing selling bullets. So Ray calls me on Monday, and he says, Richards, that car's pretty good. I said, yeah. There ain't going to be no more of them. Wow. I said, do what? What are you talking about? I had sold five cars yesterday, Ray. Five cars in one Sunday. He said, I'm not building them. I said, Ray, this is crazy. What do you mean? Uh, I just, I don't want to build them. And I said, well, I don't have a choice, Ray. I'm broke. I was about a $4 million in debt wow. and had no money. Had no money. And that's the truth. I mean, that isn't, I'm not crying nothing. But I had no money. And Steve you know, he'd left his job, and I, 
I walked, I walked out into the shop. It was Scott was working for us. And he was the only one getting paid because Steve and I didn't even get a paycheck because we didn't have to make enough money to get a paycheck. So I walked out of the shop and we were running the racetrack across the street and actually that was keeping us alive, was running the racetrack at I-79 at that time. So I walked out of the shop and I told, told Steve and I told Scott, I said, we got two choices. Either we declare bankruptcy or we go to work. And they said, let's go to work. <laughs> they walked in on, they walked, my guys walked in on Monday morning and I said, this is a car we're going to build. And that's how rocket started. Um, baby at one point had said, this thing comes off the corner like a rocket. And I said, that's the name we're going to use. But then, <laughs> you know, a really good tag for that chassis, um, over 50 or 50 of them since that day. How many? And I was actually. I'm going to talk to you about this in a second. How many have you built? Is it six thousand cars? How many? Fifty-seven fifty. Fifty-seven fifty. Wow. So you're approaching six thousand at this point. Yeah, we're we're probably a year out on six thousand. Mark, something I wanted you to touch on was you've mentioned Steve Baker dozens of times already in this interview. Steve has been your partner for thirty years. I mean, you you've talked a lot about Steve over your career, but you know. Give me the long and short of it. In a sport where people hate each other's guts after 10 years all the time, how have you and Steve Baker made it 30 years together? How is that possible? Well, probably because of Steve Baker. <laughs> um, Steve Baker is the, the coolest guy, you know, could ever ask for as a partner. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Yep. Okay. He's the coolest guy because... I don't think me and him's ever had a real argument since 1986. And, you know, there was some times we had some uh, things that we had to, because of finances and everything else. But uh, he runs that, he runs the business, the, the business side of, of Mark Richards racing rocket chassis. And, you know, I welded on cars for years and then I finally figured out that my dad always told me, you know, if you're going to be a welder, you're going to make welders salary. You can't make yourself bigger unless you make, let somebody else, you know, take care of that. And, uh, you know, I finally figured out that I had to go out and, and get our brand across the United States. So people knew who we were. And in 1998 is when I kind of feel like we kind of got, out to the public across the country when Timmy Hitt had that great year in 1998. Well, and that's, you know, to me, that well, I want to talk about the house car team a little bit because I think that's what you're insinuating out, right? You have this house car team. You take it on the road in 98. Um, and I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to bring that up to Steve next time I see him. Mark gives you all the credit for keeping the relationship together. I'm going to tell him next time I see him that. Uh, but you have this... You have this house car team, Mark, and even when it goes and makes six or seven hundred thousand dollars a year, I know how expensive this shit is. Even with your sponsorship, I want you to be brutally honest here. Does that house car team actually make money by the time Brandon and the crew and all the motor bills and everything get paid, or do you still see that as 
R&D and getting your name out there. I'd like to dive into the economics of running that house car team, which I think people think, oh, Mark's making a billion dollars with this house car team. I don't know that that's totally true, is it? No. No. There's nobody making money with a race team. <laughs> I can push you. As far as the winnings go, um, winnings will not carry the team. And I proved that in 2019, we won 840000 And I put that down. And without sponsorship money and without situation we have with Rocket uh, using this as an R&D program, um, I would say 19 was as close as we came to making money with the team, but that was 840,000. We need this team to advertise for Rocket. And it's, uh, I guess, a necessary evil um, because I used to depend on, I didn't have enough money in the beginning to run, run, you know, have my own team. So we depended on some other teams and we sponsored them cars. And the problem with that avenue is, is when a chassis builder depends on a team, the feedback and the information, they're not going to get the information. Yeah. They're going to get pieces of it. But with me being out here in the middle of it, uh, I'm able to, uh, you know, take in all that information that I learned with the car and with setups and with the driver and everything and be able to come up with something that we build that can race just about anywhere in the United States. Um, when I say that, that's something that Ray Callahan said to me years ago. He said, you can't build that car that you got and expect the average driver to drive it. And I was like, what's he mean by that? Well, about six months into that first year, what he meant. <laughs> because back in those days, everybody drove sideways. Yeah. Yeah. And I built a car. I built a car that was more like what Sunquist drove. Well, Davey Johnson understood it. He was, Davey Johnson was a great driver. Yeah. He understood how to drive that car. And here I am with all these cars and guys are spinning them out. So it's, a little while. I got to build a car that fits all driving styles. The price of that. You just can't have a car that. The, you can't have a car that just fits one driving style. The price and of that, though, Mark. The, the price of that, though, Mark, is you got to be on the road all the time, right? You, I believe you've maintained that's what I've done. I know, and that's why the point I'm getting at. I believe you've maintained at the level you've maintained because you're on the road nonstop. But I, I look at you. You're getting older. I'm not afraid. You know, we all get older. You're getting older. It's got to be exhausting. You've got to be tired. Are you tired, and how much longer can you stay on the road, Mark? Well, if I didn't have that I have now, and I have an incredible career that are younger guys, and, you know, that was the thing. Over the years, I had I got older, and, you know, we just couldn't keep up. And then I finally realized, if I'm going to do this, i got to get the guy. And, you know, I brought Danny in, and Danny's like in his early thirties now. And, and, you know, uh, we got Austin and he's 
in his mid thirties and we got Joel and he's in his early twenties and then Brandon's, you know, 27 or whatever he is. Uh, you know, I have to have those guys to get done that I used to do all the time myself. Yeah. If I had to do that work, I wouldn't be there. I can promise you. And I see guys out here still trying to do it. Older guys like me. And I think you can't do it. You can't, physically do it it's enough for me to put together the program uh if we want to make a change um uh, the shops and springs i still do and for the team and i drive the truck a lot um just so the crew guys can rest you know and and they're the guys that that keeps me going but it's kind of like a family here Uh, these guys are kind of like my kids and that's that's another thing that keeps me going. So um, I'm not going to stop any time in the near future that I see. I'm going to try to go as long as I can go because really I have to do it to keep that, to keep rocket chassis to live up to my end of the deal, you know, and my end of the deal with Steve and the people back there is to make rocket chassis the desirable chassis. And, and be able to provide service and be able to provide parts. You know, we got $2 million in inventory in our parts room. Yeah. You know, there isn't a chassis builder out there that has $2 million worth of parts. If you call it, get parts. And back when the shortage started, I just started buying more parts. I said, let's just make sure that our people doesn't run out of parts. Um, and it's getting a little bit sketchy now because it's getting tough on some things, but uh, we were fortunate enough, and, and Steve and I didn't rob the company as far as taking money from it. We invested back into the company the money we made each year and put it into inventory and equipment and buildings and things that we could use to make it better, uh, make it a better place for our Rocket customers. You mentioned to me the 800,000 number, and you might not want to answer this, but just quickly. 800 grand, you said you made that one year, and you said you barely made money that year. I'm just trying to put that in perspective for people. What, what does that look like? Are we talking you cleared 100 grand, 80 grand, 60 grand? Like, how close of a, how can you win a, I just want well, people to understand that. How close of a margin are we talking? All right. You want the breakdown? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll I, give you the rough, I'll give you the rough and dirty breakdown. Please. All right? Forty-seven and a half percent of my money, that the purse money that comes in, goes to the driver and the crew. Yeah. So that gives me fifty-two and a half percent. Yeah. All right. So let's just round it off for fifty for easy numbers for for this conversation. Here, four hundred grand. We want eight forty. Yeah. Okay, we want eight forty. That gives me four forty. Right. Four twenty. My engine bill. That. 840, 420. You're yep, right, yep. 420. My engine bill for that year was 200,000. <laughs> okay. That gives me 20 to run my shop and pay my salaries. That doesn't include the salaries at 47.5% for the three guys that takes care of this car. To run the shop, pay the salaries, pay the insurance truck, which is and, and the, the equipment, which is higher than most people would want to think, um, 
the insurance on the equipment, the utility, and the, the truck, the, the building, the general liability on the building, the utilities, the propane bill, all that stuff is right close to 200 grand. Now, I haven't bought a car. <laughs> I own, you know, Rocket, I, I got a pretty good deal with Rocket. <laughs> so, you know, and I got a good deal. I got a deal with parts people, you know, and because, obviously, because the amount of stuff we sold for them, this truck was about a dollar a mile, $4 a gallon. Obviously, it wasn't $4 a gallon in 19. But right now, I'm a dollar a mile because fuel is $4, basically, and this truck gets four miles to the gallon. Yeah. So in a year's time, my fuel bill is forty grand. So you're actually upside down. If I'm doing these numbers right, Mark, you are actually, before sponsorship, you're upside down, <laughs> actually. I'm not crying, okay, because I got sponsorship. And like I said, this has been part of Rock chassis. So, uh, rocket chassis, it, it eats a little bit. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Because we're a corporation, and in order for us to run that team, um, it's the R&D program for the product we sell. If I didn't have this team, i got no way to develop the product. As successful as you are right now with Brandon, you and Josh Richards, uh, your son, <laughs> obviously had very similar success. I remember talking to you. I think I was one of the few folks that talked to you the night Josh actually left the ride. Um, you called and said, "Hey, this story's going to come out. You know, I want you to you guys to kind of have a scoop on it." The only ride Josh had ever known at that point. Take me back to that time in your life, Mark. And I appreciate real honesty here. How hard was it when Josh left? Well, it was really hard because I felt like I was doing this to build him a life and to build him a, a way that he could go living and be part of Rocket Chassis. You know, maybe, you know, at some point him take the Army program over, run the house car, you know, that was kind of like my, uh, I guess, my of what could happen, of what I would foresee that I would like to see happen. And, uh, you know, things change. And Josh doesn't, he doesn't want to go through what I go through as far as the stress of having employees, having customers, uh, having customers looking for answers all the time. Um, there was a lot of stress in this job. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of times it's more thankless than cool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, people uh, buy a car and you only sell them a, a piece of, a, of their race team. And, you know, the car is what's looked upon of why they're either successful or unsuccessful. And, you know, that's only a small piece of it. And, you know, we've tested, and, I, I don't, and I'm sure the guy doesn't have a problem saying this. I, I'm, I'm going to say it. We was testing last night, and a, and a customer 
asked me if Brandon could get in his car. And I said, after we got done, and I said, yeah, no problem. Brandon, get in. Brandon went five tenths faster than that guy. <laughs> you know, it's not just the car. It's, it's the whole package with a team. And, you know, it took me a lifetime to put this team together. And, you know, uh, getting uh, an excellent crew chief like I have with Danny and, you know, Austin and Joel, the job they do, I mean, Austin is, you know, incredible with the tires, incredible with the bodies. And then Joel, he takes up the slack for all of us. Whatever we need him to do, he does. And then Brandon, you know, I everybody asked me how I ended up with Brandon Shepard. And, you know, um, I watched Brandon probably about three or four years before Brandon even knew I was watching him. And, uh, you know, I could tell this guy was going to be really good. And a guy called me not too long ago, and he's a young guy, and he says, what do you look for in a driver? And I said, well, I'll tell you what I look for and the reason Brandon got this job was experience. And I said, experience on somebody else's dollar yeah because i don't want to go through the pains of taking somebody and trying to teach them everything you know that's not what i got a program i need a guy that can get in there and get the job done and you know brandon the first year we had a little bit of teaching going on and that was in 2012 when i came out there and run the summer nationals with me and that's when josh went and ran nationwide and uh, anyhow, Brandon, before he ever came to me in 2012, he was 19 in 2012, this guy had raced a lot of places and, and, and pretty much did it himself in one crew guy. And, you know, it wasn't like he had an abundance of equipment. It wasn't like he had an abundance of help that got everything ready. I mean, he was working, driving the truck, and I was watching him. And I'm like, that guy right there is going to be good. And, you know, he ended up, he is good. <laughs> and, and, I, you know, I, I, think and you're, uh, I think you're making that point because I asked you about Josh. So I'm going to ask you something else about Josh. Do you, is there a day where Josh Richards ever drives this house car again? Let's say Brandon Shepard goes on to do something else in his life. Would would jo, would you ever? Do you think Josh would come back and drive the house car? I don't know. That's a t- that's a question that I don't even know how to answer it. I mean, if Brandon Shepard, uh, the the ride's his as long as he wants it. You know, it's not going to be a deal where. You know, it would have to be on Brandon Shepard's terms that this deal's over. And he gets along too good with the crew, uh, with all of us. I mean, we're all like family. So who knows? Someday maybe Brandon goes and says, hey, you know, I'm tired of driving that 10 hours every time I got to come to go racing. I mean, he gets in that pickup truck and drives to West Virginia and drives back and forth. He was over here and we rate, well, we were supposed to race Friday and Saturday rained out. We raced Thursday and he drove home from for father's day overnight 
and was back here before Wednesday morning, you know? So, and that's a 10 hour trip for him. So, I mean, as long as he wants to keep doing it and as long as the team's still together, I mean, I don't see nothing changing. Uh, as far as Josh coming back, that would have to be on his terms. I mean, you know, if it's what he wants. Would you ever do two? Would you ever do two house car teams, Mark? I'm sure you've thought of it. Would you ever do two? No, because Rocket Chassis can't handle that much R and D. Yeah, <laughs> that much R and D cost. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I give you the numbers so you can figure. Yeah, it yeah, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so no, you know, no, Brandon. Say Brandon says he doesn't want to do it anymore. Josh has decided he doesn't want to come back. Who does Mark Richards put in the car? If it's not Brandon and Josh, who are you putting in the car? I don't know. I'm getting old. <laughs> I'm, that's not I'm an answer. Old, so that's... I don't know. I mean, if, if I was still racing, I would look at some young guys that I feel like has the kind of work ethic that Brandon had, that has the experience that Brandon had or Josh had. You got to realize this Josh raced a lot of places for a young guy yeah. that had never raced anything. Uh, you know, I drug him out on the road the first year he drove. Uh, well, first world outlaw race he ran was right here at Lernerville, that's right, right. Here where I'm at right now. Yeah, that's right. And that was six races into his career. He, he had only drove six races, um, local type shows at Hagerstown and PMS. And I brought him here with a whole bunch of cars back in April of 2004. And he made the race out of 60 some cars and and was running as high as the top 10. So, you know, Josh was drug all over the country that first year. I had him out west. He was in Fargo. He was in Cedar Lake. He was everywhere the first year he drove. So that's what I look for, is somebody that's been at Cedar Lake. Somebody has been at Lernerville. Somebody has been at PMS. Somebody's been to Hagerstown. Somebody has been to Volusia County. And not only just been there, but have somewhat had some success at it. You know what I'm saying? Like Brandon Shepard in 2011 or 10, whenever it was, I think it was 2011. He came to Cedar Lake with a, with a, with an old truck and trailer. I'll, I'll just say what I've seen I, with an older truck and trailer. And he drove it there. He'd been running the summer nationals and he almost beat us in the heat race <laughs> and his fuel pump went out. And then in the feature, he drove from like 21st and was up there battling with us for second as we was running second. And, you know, I said, this guy is probably as close to what Josh was in his early days as anybody I've ever seen. Little did I know, he kind of, Josh was his, kind of his hero. You know, he looked up to Josh. I want to. Uh, there's. There, I know you. You're on a little bit of a tighter schedule with Lernerville, and there's a lot I want to get to yet. So I want to ask you this next question as we keep going here. One of the first Rigsby reports I did was with Doug Bland, who I'll just be honest. I don't think Doug is your biggest fan, or certainly was not your biggest fan in 2004. He and the Extreme Series were going with Goodyear. You've talked about it a little bit. You were forming the Dirty Dozen with Scott, and you're aligning yourselves with Hoosier. 
I think Doug and others would claim, you know, all Mark care about was his tire deal and the money that he got from Hoosier. I'll allow you to respond to that a little bit. How do you respond to those criticisms from Doug Bland in 04? Um, why, you know, why were you against what he was doing with Goodyear in 04? And looking back, Mark, do you have any regrets about what happened in 2004? Well, I was going through a transition year. That's when Josh was just starting to practice a little bit in 03. And I'd been racing with Steve in the Mopar deal. And have a Tampa had been bought out by Doug Bland, and uh, I I wasn't sure what I was going to do yet because I didn't know what Josh what it was going to take to get Josh to, up to be a driver. We'd practiced a little bit. We knew he had, you know, a lot of ability to be able to do it. Um, I had talked to a couple different drivers about driving for me because Steve was going back to running his own program. The Mopar deal was kind of going away, and I was going back to running. Well, I was getting ready to run Cornet engines. And uh, anyhow, we had went to – Doug was – we was at Dixie. That's where we was. We was at Dixie. In October, and late, Doug late in had, the year, right? October. Yes, yeah. we was at Dixie for the shootout. And I was there with Francis, and Francis was driving for me. So he was having these meetings with all the top teams – and telling us his plan. And I was in the motorhome with Chubb Frank that day and Ray Vest. And that, and he was talking to me, Chubb, and Ray Vest. And he was telling us that he was going to take everybody's tire deal. And this Goodyear was going to do all this. And we're going to have a big point fund and blah, 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 blah. Well, anyhow, Chubb Frank was telling him, look. I need my tire deal. I work to get this tire deal. You don't know how much this tire deal means to me. I can't race if I don't have this tire deal because I can't afford to pay full price for tires, you know? So I'm listening to Chubb and Ray Best is against it. And he hasn't told us anything really how we're going to benefit. Okay other than the normal point fund that was being paid at that time out of Habit Tampa. So we kind of parted. Steve started putting his own program together, and I went to PRI, and I went to a meeting in the basement of one of them hotels. I don't even know which one it was. Well, Scott was there. Sleeper was there. I can, I'm just naming off guys. I remember being in that room. Ed Petroff was in there. Um, you know, Billy Moyer was in there. We're all in this room. Steve Francis, everybody. Doug's up there on the podium telling everybody, you know, how great this is going to be. Well, a guy had just told me, he said, he had overheard Doug Bland say, now this is hearsay, not I'm saying it. I'm saying a, a guy walked in the room and he said, look, I heard Doug Bland saying to a guy that if, if I make all this work, I'm going to have a new Corvette and a new airplane by the end of next year. Well, that tells me one thing. That guy is worried about what he's going to get. So we're in the middle of this meeting, 
and everybody's asking questions and everything. And nobody's really asked the real question. So I'm, Josh is with me and I raised my hand and I said, here's the question I got, Doug. You're going to take everybody's, you're going to make everybody buy Goodyear tires at retail. Okay. Tell me how that helps us. What do we get back in return? He flipped the podium over, threw the papers all over the floor, and he said, Mark, you're not even going to race next year. And I'm sitting there like, how's he know what I'm going to do? So I left that meeting and was invited to a meeting the next day with Scott Bloomquist and the people from Boundless, which own World of Outlaws. Well, in the middle of all that paper shuffling and stuff went all over the floor, somebody picked up the paperwork. And everything he was saying wasn't what it said on that contract from Goodyear. All of his numbers was based on tire sales. So that meant in order for him to get his money, he had to sell tires. It wasn't like there was money up front. So there's all these guys in the room were on some kind of a tire deal. Just about everybody in there was. Well, that tire deal back then was big to teams that were barely getting by anyway. You know, for them not to be able to get a deal on some tires meant a guy like Chubb Frank, like he said in that, in that motorhome that day, he said, I may not even be able to start the year off because I can't afford to go buy tires. Well, those were teams that depended on everything they could get to make it work because they didn't have big trucks and trailers and sponsorships and, and stuff like today. So, Boundless, we set a meeting up, and it was in Pittsburgh. And I went to Pittsburgh. And it was incredible. I mean, the guys that was there at that meeting, you know, Scott Bloomquist, Billy Moyer. I mean, it was the who's who of really most of dirt racing at that time. I mean, there were some other guys that aligned with Doug, but the real who's who was in that room. The original Dirty Dozen. Yeah, talk. Yeah, the original Dirty Dozen. The original dozen. Dirty Dozen, plus some other guys that was interested. Yeah. You know, like Don O'Neill was in there, and, and you know, Rick Auckland, and, and, you know, guys that were the big hitters at that time, Mike Malzano, and, 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 and you know, obviously, Francis, I was in there because yeah. I kind of worked a deal out with Bart Hartman to drive for me. Well, we came up with a criteria, Scott and I did, of you either had to be a crown jewel winner or a national championship winner. And we considered stars and uh, Have Tampa, Tampa as, the, as, as the, the, the bigger series that you had to want a, ser- uh, a title in. So he ended up with Chubb and, you know, the big guys at that time. So we wasn't sure exactly if it was going to work we all they talked about everything and they said we're going to have another meeting right after christmas 
Now, this was right before Christmas, the week before Christmas. Then we have another meeting right after Christmas. So I go back home. Doug Bland calls. And he says, did you have your meeting? <laughs> I said, well, I was at a meeting. Well, what are you going to do? And I said, not sure yet what I'm going to do. Well, I can tell you right now, if you don't come and go with me on this extreme deal, I'll see to it that that kid of yours doesn't have nothing but a pure uh, street stock career at that little shitty racetrack you had. I said, well, I think I just made my mind up. I said, no matter what happens here, I'm not going your direction. And that's when the line was drawn in the sand. It's when he told me that my kid was going to have a street stock career at my little shitty racetrack. Wow. Well, I... Uh, is that, is I'll, that enough? I'll let that stand. Yeah, I'll let that stand on its own, right? Um, you know, and along the same lines of the Doug Bland question, I bet if you've heard it 100 times, Mark, you've heard it 10,000 Um and this is basically a quote I hear all the time. Mark Richards runs the world of outlaws. Whatever Mark Richards says goes. My response usually is like, listen, this guy's put in 17 years with him. He's going to have some say in the series, right? Good, bad, or indifferent. He's earned that. I'll let you respond to that also. Do you think you carry too big of a stick with the outlaws, or do you think your stick is exactly the right size, so to speak, with the outlaws? I don't know about the stick. Um, I feel like, again, this goes back. So if it's good for me, it's good for everybody else. And, you know, after being, like you said, 17 years here and 48 years in the business, uh, I, what I, what I hate to see is us make headway and then we either lose someone a director or a tech man or somebody, and then we back up from where we were. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And you and, guys have you've shuffled a lot. The outlaws have the last five or six years, directors and, then, and tech people. And then I'm like, and then I'm like, why are what this? We had this worked out. What is the problem? You know? And they're like, well, Mark Richards is just bitching because it's not going his way. Look. It ain't got nothing to do with Mark Richards bitching. It's like we have a precedent set, and then because we have a personnel change, it all changes. And you're like, now we're starting all back over again. We're trying to figure out how to do restarts. We're trying to figure out where somebody goes when a car spins out. I'm like, this is the stuff that doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, tire rules. We, we can't figure out what tire rule. Why would we change the tire rule if it was working? You know, well, you know, we just, we just talked to so-and-so and they think this or they think that. I said, why don't you just leave it alone? If it was working, why are we changing it? Well, you just want it for yourself. Uh, no. I mean, we've been through this. We traveled 10 years figuring out what tires worked where. And, you know, I, that's the thing. Is my stick too big? 
I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to say I, I feel like I carry a stick. I just feel like I'm a car owner that's been through it for so long. And then to sit here and watch either series, I'm going to say Lucas or World of Outlaws. Uh, I'm not just picking on World of Outlaws. It's just whenever it's stuff that we shouldn't even be fooled with. I'm like, what got us here? <laughs> you know, how did we arrive here by making all these mistakes? I don't know. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it, it does. Um, it does to a degree. Uh, we talked a little outlaws. Let's talk a little Lucas. You know, Rick Schwally said on my podcast last month, you know, in a perfect world, there'd be one national series for dirt late model racing. Uh, you're an advocate for two. Obviously, you're an Outlaws guy. Have you talked to Rick about that since he made that claim? And, and do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Rick and I are friends. And he knows we don't live in a perfect world. You know, if everything was perfect, he's 100% right. Unfortunately, this isn't a perfect world. Um, I think For the sport to be strong, there needs to be two series. And what I mean by that is there's more people out here racing every weekend. There's more teams like mine and, and David Wells and Lance Landers and, and all that racing every weekend. Uh, and whenever there's a race like the Firecracker or the, dirt, uh, the Prairie Dirt Classic, you know, we all get together, yeah, and it helps that race. And if we got to where there would be one national series with a point fund and a per structure similar to what we have now, there would be teams go away. And you'd be left with – eventually it would shake out the amount, the amount of teams that are there now. You'd be looking at probably 10 to 15 teams traveling nationally. You're not going to get 20 or 25 teams traveling nationally whenever the rewards are only for 10 or 12 people. Yep. So the world of outlaws and Lucas both are important to this sport. Um, I guess if I was just a, you know, a world of outlaw guy, I may say different, or if I was just a Lucas, Lucas guy, but I race both. Um, you know, you got to realize we raced with Lucas a lot and Brandon, my team or Brandon, I'm not bragging or nothing, but they have won the last four big races that Lucas has had <laughs> major race. So it's not like we don't look out for Lucas too. We want Lucas to survive and we want both to be strong. And, and, you know, it's not like there's a bat. I don't feel like, we're battling Lucas or Lucas is battling us. I think that's all gone. I think a lot of that rivalry uh, back in the day I agree. was it's, from the Doug Bland, yeah. was from the Doug Bland leftover area uh, era, you know? Um, and I agree with you in a utopian, I, in a utopian society, there is one 20 person national tour and it's incredible, but we can't, it just doesn't, it's not going to work. So on some level, Mark, or on some level, Rich, or Rick is right, but on some level, it's just not going to work right now. So, but you know, I don't think it's right. It's not. Yeah. Think about this for one minute before we go any further. 
You know how many big races are run right now across the United States? Obviously, you guys run the website that keeps track of it. You guys <laughs> right, got right. the number, right? Right. Okay. Just think about if World of Outlaws went away. How would Lucas fill that hole? Yep. How would the racers race every weekend? How would they go without having a weekend off to get their equipment refurbished or that cost factor that we go back to that my team's about five grand a night to unload. Yeah. So, you know, when you've got a, a cost factor of five grand a night, the more nights you run, the more your cost goes up. Obviously, you've got a chance to win more money, but the reality to it is, you know, your cost goes up. So if, if you're budgeted for 70 nights at five grand a night, that's 350 you need, you know, to cover your cost. So if it's a hundred nights a year and your cost is at five grand a night, then you need a half a million dollars. Speaking of all that, um, no, go, you go finish your thought there because I'm going to segue it to something else, but finish that thought. What's that? I said, no, I was going to let you finish your thought. I said, I'm going to segue that to something else because I know exactly what you're talking about, but finish that thought. That's what I'm saying. Just think, how could a race team keep up if it had to race every weekend? Yeah. You know, the Lucas guys get the weekend off, and, and sometimes they don't take it. Sometimes they go run a World of Outlaw race like this, well, like used to be at this weekend, but this weekend they're up in Minnesota. But, and then, Outlaw guys need a weekend off, and and you got to get your equipment built. You know, I mean, you if we started in Florida, and there was only one national series, think about the promoters that would want races that now can either get either or Lucas World of Outlaw race. You know, there'd be promoters that would be left out that just couldn't get a race. No, the logistics don't. And if you're carrying 20 guys on the road, you know, and only 24 spots in the feature, how does that work? Or only four guys. There, there's just, there's too many things to figure out. Uh, you, you know, you talk about yeah. a lot of races. You know, we have our 10-race mini-series this year with Flo, the midweek stuff. I know you're not a fan of, you know, you and I are pretty good friends, but you've made no bones about it. You're not a, a big fan of running the non-national tour stuff. Why is that? What is it about that stuff that you don't? You may do one or two, Mark, but what what is it about them you don't like? I know you're sort of anti-unsanctioned. Why is that? Well, again, it goes back to cost versus reward. Um, you got to realize when it cost me five grand, I got to win ten to break even. Yeah. So that's part of it, but the other part of it is. I feel like the world of outlaws and Lucas has put the work in. And I think Rick touched on this a little bit in your last report with him that for people to just come in and kind of, I don't want to say the word hijack, but just kind of get in the middle of it to say, well, these guys are going here. We'll pick them up there. Those guys needs they can all say what they want to because nobody's raced more than I, I i feel like nobody in racing and that includes that includes scott and billy i feel like i was racing before them yeah has raced more than I, than i had you know and you know uh and been to more racetracks across the country you just i told clint smith a long time ago 
he used to try to race every race he could race. And I said, Clint, here's the problem. It's costing you money. He says, no, I'm making money. I said, look, <laughs> your engines are getting wore out. You've got, you're buying more tires than you've ever bought. You're buying more fuel for your truck than you've ever bought. I said, at some point, you got to look at quality over quantity. And this goes, I got a picture. I showed it to Kevin Kovac at Port Royal. Some guy brought me a pile of pictures up to Port Royal and give them to me. They were old pictures from back in the 80s with me in the picture with Rodney Combs back in the day. And we won a race at Hagerstown, Maryland. And I said, Kevin, look at the date on that check. 1982. How much was the check, Kevin? 10000 <laughs> 30 40 years later, here we are, right? <laughs> 20 years. That was 1982. 40, 40 I said. Years 40. Later. 40, right, right, right. Yeah, 40 years later. We were racing for ten grand to win back then. Not as many races, yeah, obviously. And we wasn't racing for a championship as big as what we race for today. And we didn't have two dreams in one year for one hundred twenty-five thousand apiece. And we didn't have two World One Hundreds coming up for whatever they are. Tenth, pl- tenth place didn't. Tenth place didn't pay is, two grand, right? The point is, our normal weekly show is ten, twelve, fifteen grand. 40 years later. Now, I'm not complaining. It's just the fact of the matter, 10 grand back in 1982 was a way bigger purse than 10 grand in 2021. You understand what I'm saying? I, I totally do. So, listen, I don't begrudge you for not coming and running our races. I think you make valid points. I don't think the hijacking or piggyback point that Rick makes is totally fair in the fact that of the 10 races we have scheduled, only three of them are really connected to Lucas races. That, you know, And I could do 10 without connecting any of them to Lucas races. So your, your points are fair. I'm not saying they're not. I just, you know, I wouldn't mind having the blue one car every once in a while. You'll probably see it at one this year. All right. Uh, Last couple things. I'm pretty sure there's one I'll be at. Yeah, I know you'll be at Fairbury. I know that in between Knoxville and – okay. Last couple things before true or false, and this has been a fantastic interview. I really mean that so far. Um, One thing I find so fascinating, Mark, about the life of a chassis builder is how impossible it must be to keep friends, right? Like you – you know, you, you had Francis for a while, and then Francis is gone. You have Eckert, then Eckert's gone. It always seems like it comes full circle. And you in Lanigan, Lanigan was there, then Lanigan's gone. It always comes full circle, and you're friends with those guys again. But how hard is that to 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 navigate that in your line of work? Friendships seem like they would be difficult to me. Well, it's definitely hard, and you know, it would eat at you when something like that happened back in those back in the days you know and and when i say back in the days i'm talking 25 years ago 30 years ago we were all younger and and truthfully the guys you mentioned were trying to get established in the sport i was trying to get established as a business and in the sport and you know you become friends with these guys and then the racing slash the competition gets in the way of friendship. And 
you know, I, Rick and I have talked about this many times. I mean, I, I feel like that Rick Eckert and I, you know, we've had our, our days that the competition and the racing got in the way. There were some hard feelings, even uh, some other hard feelings. But at the end of the day, I knew Rick Eckert and I were friends. And today we're still friends. Uh, that's what I liked uh, about my friendship with Rick. Um, Daryl, he's another guy that, you know, I was close to. And, you know, he went another direction, uh, competition and business with us. Um, but when it really comes down to it, we're still friends. And he called me last year and he said, hey, you got a problem with me getting the car. I said, Daryl, I don't care. You know, um, I, I feel like that if I needed something, I could call Daryl. And Daryl knows if he needs something, he can call me. And there's other people along the way. Um, Chuck Frank's another one. You know, if he needs something, he knows he can call me. And, uh, you know, it's just because of business and competition. You wind up friendships kind of sometimes take a back seat. But uh, when it really comes down to it, you know who your friends are, yeah. and they know who their friends are. Do you have a friendship, Mark, that you miss the most? And that's a—I mean, that's—I'm kind of asking you to bury your soul a little bit there. But do you have one that you've lost that you miss the most? There's probably a lot that I miss. Like, truthfully, my relationship with Randy Sweet—I miss that. Yeah. I mean, as, as corny and and and. Well, Randy Sweet was a genius. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about Randy Sweet that I feel like should be put into this podcast. I put the first rack on a car that he built. Wow, I didn't know that. And those racks originally weren't called Sweet Manufacturing. Those racks were originally stamped How on the top of them. How Racing. How organized and helped Randy get that thing going. And, and my understanding was the racks were to be sold through Howl Racing. And I bolted the first one on in 1979. I had no idea what a rack and pinion steering was. Believe <laughs> me. He's talking about a young kid that had worked on, you know, basically stock steering type cars and, uh, you know, rear steer, front steer and all that. And then Ed comes out and he says, we won the race at Motodrome. Uh, Rodney was driving. And we go home, uh, go back to Michigan, and Ed says, we're going to put rack and pinion steering on it. I had no clue what we was doing. But Randy brought this rack over, 1979, and Ed made the mount. We bolted it on the car, and we went back to Motodrome the next week, and we was all over the track. Like, you don't even understand how bad all over the track. Like, it was bad and i'm like this rack continuous steering is terrible you know so we go back to michigan and ed goes makes a couple phone calls to, to some friends of his in detroit and he come out and he said we got to check the bump steer well bump steer today is common knowledge to any racer what it is but you got to realize a 19 year old kid in 1979 bump steer i have no idea what they're talking about <laughs> but i learned how or what bump steer was with Ed Howe in his shop that day. And we wound up cutting that rack off, moving it back down and remounting it. And we went back to Motordrome 
the next week and we won again. You know, so that's that's the history with me and, and that relationship. Somewhere along the way, Sweet's name ended up on top of them, and Ed no longer sold Sweet Racks. He, he, he went to another brand of rack. So I don't know exactly the details of what happened. I do know that there was some issues there that happened, and I don't know exactly what they were. But needless to say, I sold another brand of rack, and Brandy kept trying to get me to switch over to his rack. And I wish I would have switched over to it earlier because Brandy was, I mean, he was a genius. Uh, and the stuff he would tell me and help me with was incredible as a chassis builder, you know, things that would just kind of give you a direction to kind of think about and how to go about it. And, uh, Ed Howe's another guy I missed. Um, he was definitely, uh, of all the people I've ran across in this business, he was definitely the guy that probably made the most impact on my life. I'm going to make you answer this next question, and I'm going to make you keep it short because I have had this conversation with you, and you and I have spent hours on the phone talking about it. So I am actually making you answer this last this question short. So you have to keep this one concise, Mark. We've talked about it a thousand times. How do we save late model racing from you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now being gone, five years from now, the trouble that could be around? How do we save it? I know it's going to be hard for you to answer this short, but I want like Mark Richards' best answer. That's why I say keep it short. It's because I, 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 you and I could meander on and on about a hundred things to do. Keep it short. How do we save it? All we can do, all we can do at this point is hope that the fans keep coming and supporting it. Um, I think what Kyle Larson has done to help the sport get new eyes on it, uh, new fans. Um, I could go into a long story about all that with Mike health and all that, but I'm not going to go into all that. But I, I think it, we have to keep the fans coming and we have local racing is really is what's hurting. And, and to help it, I think, I don't know what, truthfully, I don't have the answer. I'm just going to, I'm not going to give you a bunch of BS. I don't have the answer. And, uh, the, the top line of racing is, when I say the, the top tier of dirt late model racing, it's healthy. Uh, and it's healthy as I've ever seen it. And the fans, I mean, I'm sitting here watching the traffic come in here at Lernerville, and it's incredible. I mean, you know, this, the big races, the Lucas races, the World of Outlaw races, the, the Eldor races, it's incredible that the fans and stuff we're getting, but... I think it's it's a double-edged sword with social media and everything that we have available today. You know, it used to be back at a time when there was local heroes. And the reason there was local heroes is because if you went to that race and you watched Kevin Weaver win, you thought Kevin Weaver was the greatest driver ever yeah. because you didn't know that Scott Bloomquist and Billy Moyer was over in Pennsylvania having a battle, yeah, you know, yeah. out in, out in Fairbury, Kevin Weaver just won. Well, you had no connection to what was happening anywhere else yeah. other than what happened at that speedway. And we've lost that. And I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't know how you fix it. You know, the, the, the technology we have today, 
the social media that we have, the, the, the pay-per-view sites. I'm just going to say it. I'm not downing you. I'm just saying it. You know, we have created an avenue for people to no longer look at a local hero the same way. They look at Brandon Overton or Kyle Larson or Jonathan Davenport or Brandon Shepard or whoever it is. They look at them that they're the best. And I want to watch the best. Well, how are you going to watch the best? you got to either go to a race like Lernerville here this weekend or turn pay-per-view on, whether it be Flow or whether it be uh, Dirt Vision or whether it's Lucas Oil TV yep. or whether it's live TV. You know, people have kind of it, – it, the local heroes aren't like they used to be. All right, quick one. One more bonus quick one before true or false. Your five and I, five best racetracks in the country that you like. Maybe not best. Five racetracks you enjoy going to the most. Just give me the quick five. Your favorite five. Well, I can say Knoxville, Knoxville, Knoxville. But <laughs> That's only one. That only counts as one. So you got four to go. Knoxville's one. What are your other four? I'm not going to give them to you in any, any order. We're going to say Knoxville's one of them. Bearberry's one of them. Cedar Lake's one of them. Uh, I enjoy going to Cedar Lake. Um, uh, River Cities. I yeah. mean, that. if fans have never been to River Cities, that is one of the most awesome places to go in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, I love the Florida races, uh, and that covers East Bay, Volusia. Um, you know, I enjoy Ocala. I mean, those... That kind of counts. The Florida tracks kind of count to me as a as a, as a, a favorite for me. So that's pretty much my favorites. Eldor, obviously, Eldor's in there. So you can put all them together, mix them up, shake them up, and I like <laughs> all of them. Usually, uh, I kind of know what time of the year it is, so I know where I want to be. Uh, I know where my favorite track is at that time. You know, in the winter time, it's Florida. You know, well. in the middle of the summer and September, it's Eldor and. <laughs> Knoxville, I wish they had more. I wish Knoxville had more races. Yeah, me and you both. We end every Rigsby report with true or false questions. I have four true or false questions for you, Mark, and I usually get these by talking to people closest to you. I get some behind the scenes stories on you. So we wrap it up because I know you got to get back to the drivers' meeting for for Lernerville on Thursday night. Uh, you you first true or false question. You referenced the Dale McDowell, McDowell traction control thing earlier. So I'm going to ask you this question point blank. True or false? Since we're on the topic of traction control, when Dale McDowell was accused of or busted for traction control back in Kankakee back in the day, I think it was 03, I think is when it was, if I remember the exact year right. Uh, I think it was 2002. 02 or 03, yeah. True or false, you know for a fact he didn't have it on the car, and I think you know where I'm going with this. True or false? <laughs> True. Can you can you tell me why you know he didn't have it on the car? Because it was locked up in my safe in my truck. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. The wiring harness was on there, but the actual traction control thing was in your safe, right? In your hauler. It was in my safe, and the crazy thing about that was... <laughs> I mean, we had told him that we've been practicing with it. And I sent Francis to the driver's meeting and I said, Francis, go find out if they've made a decision yet. And Francis comes back and he says, man, I don't know. That Richie Lewis is mad. He told me, he said, you tell that Mark Richards that I'll tear his car down. 
Well, at that point, why would you ever put it on your car? Right, you right, know? right. So, uh, it, believe me, none of us ran it. I mean, I knew there were some guys running it, but I mean, the guys I was fooling with, like Dale and Rick and, and, and my car, we never ran it because we were told it wasn't legal, but I could hear it. I mean, I knew who had it. Yeah. But the whole time, and anyhow, they they made a big deal out of Dale, and I thought it was funnier than hell, because they came in and they found the plug where you plugged it in, which it was just a plug. It was a weather-packed plug. And they put Dale up against the wall of the trailer and patted him down like they were doing a <laughs> drug search. I'm like... Uh, I love that. Thank you. So that one's true. Second, I second true or false question. I had I've had many people tell me this was true. You tell me true or false. True or false. Mark Richards is in a better mood when Boom Briggs is around. Is that true or false? <laughs> I'd say that's true. <laughs> <laughs> true. Okay. I had a lot of people say so. I'm glad you backed that up. Uh, third true Boom or false. Boom kind of lightens them. Moment, you know? He do no, without question, without question. Uh, I'm in a better mood when Boom's around. Uh, third true or false question. You once had such a bad cast in fishing that you launched your entire fishing pole into the water and it was lost forever in a lake in Wisconsin. Is that true? Your cast was so bad that you lost your entire pole? Well, I'm going to say partially. <laughs> uh, that, yes, I lost the pole, but it wasn't because the cast was bad. I forgot to unhook the uh, the spinner, and when I cast it, I just give it a, a flick, and I didn't have my hand, and it just walked right out of my hand. I know where I know about where it is. Uh, and also, didn't you have a, a secondary true or false to that? You had you you loved that pole so much, you had one shipped to Pat Doerr's house while you were still on the road, right? <laughs> yep. I bought a new one, uh, had it there in two days. Oh, I love that. I love that, too. That one came from Sheppy, by the way. Sheppy made me made me ask I'm you. Sure. Uh, final true or false question. Once in South Dakota, you not only showed up to race for a World of Outlaws race, but the track was in such rough condition, you got in the grader, graded the racetrack, but unfortunately you were unable to finish the grader job because the grader ran out of gas. Is that story true? That's 100% true. <laughs> Luckily, what, what was funny was that Chrisman asked me, he said, can you get on the grader and run it? I said, yeah. Because the guy was, he was hung up. He was all over the place with it. And because of my experience having Interstate 79 Speedway, I've graded quite a bit. So Chrisman said, can you run it? And I said, yeah. So the track was really bad. The fans were mad because the locals wanted to run, but the outlaws didn't because the track was so bad. Yeah. So I got it about half graded, but when I went to get on the grader, the guy that was taking me to it, he said, whatever you do, don't shut this thing off because it don't have a starter. <laughs> and it was running. And he asked the guy, he said, does this thing have fuel in it? Well, nobody ever said anything. I just got on started great. <laughs> well, luckily, when I felt it starting to run out of fuel, I remember him saying, it doesn't have a starter. <laughs> and I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get the blade up because the blade's loaded with dirt. And... The fans are going crazy. They're throwing beer cans. They're throwing pop. They're throwing everything, just going crazy. I think God was watching me that night because it come the biggest rainstorm yeah, you've ever right. seen. That's right. So, uh, yeah. 
I love that's that true. story. It, it, Mark, last thing I want to say to you, I usually, when I wrap up an interview, I have several notes about the person I'm interviewing, but I didn't put any notes in for this because I just wanted to kind of speak from, from the heart to you. Listen, you you have heard every criticism that's been lobbed of you over the years, lobbed at you. You you know what those criticisms are. I know what they are. I, and I and I and I have no problem saying this on the air, and I mean it. I am one of the biggest Mark Richards defenders on the planet. And you know that you know. I, I'm not saying I've agreed with every decision you've ever made in your life, but what I am saying is, you are the hardest working guy I believe in dirt track racing, and you have been for a long time. You have been nothing but respectful to me and the entire organization that we have built at Dirt on Dirt and Now Flow for 14 or 15 years. And whenever I've really needed something, you have always been there for me. And I don't think it was out of any personal gain for yourself. I think you did it because I, I know you to be a really good guy. And you have always treated me with a ton of respect. I consider you a very good friend. And quite frankly, I don't I don't care what any criticism is of you because our relationship has been fantastic for 14 or 15 years. And I just wanted to say that, that you, to me, you have meant you belong on the Mount Rushmore of dirt late model racing without question. You know, you and CJ and Earl and Billy and Scott, to me, you're the five guys. And I know that's, there's only four spots on Mount Rushmore, but I'm, I'm adding a spot. And, you know, I just, you, you've never asked anybody to do anything that you've not done yourself or you weren't willing to do yourself. And that's through hard work, through everything else. So you know where I stand on Mark Richards. I've always been a big Mark Richards fan. And I, and from a personal perspective, I just wanted to tell you thank you for everything you've done for me over these last 14 years. And I don't really give a shit what people say about that because I mean it. So I just wanted to end the interview well, by, by saying that because I mean it. I appreciate that a lot. I mean, it means a lot. Uh, our friendship means a lot. And, uh, you know, this sport humbles you. It makes your skin really thick. And, you know, no matter uh, what sport it is, people are always going to say something. And and a lot of people don't even know me. I agree. You know, that's, I agree. that's the bottom line, you know. Um, they speculate because they see and I think sometimes uh, jealousy I think other things come into play and they don't realize look I'll do whatever it takes to run my business the best I can run it but when it really comes down to it I want the sport to be the best it can be because if it's the best it can be it's good for me Yeah, you know so that's that's who I am. I mean, I'd rather than, you know, take something from somebody, I'd rather give something to somebody. And, you know, uh, I, I just don't know some of the people that, I don't know. I guess maybe some people took me the wrong way over the years. I don't know. Wow. Well, I, I think but in competition, yeah. Uh, you know, in competition, in the heat of the moment, I mean, look at Tom Brady. Tom Brady has taken a lot of slack, but when it comes down to it, he's had a heck of a career uh, as a football player, and you know he's won a few Super Bowls along the way. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> well, hey, but reminder: you're Bill, you're Bill Belichick, right? You're not. You're the Bill Belichick of that organization, not Tom Brady. You're Bill. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I kind of. 
think a little bit that way, but you know, I'm not, when it comes down to it, I want to do what's good for everybody. So, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. And, uh, I just want to think that, you know, the sports, you know, going to continue. Well, I know you've I know you've got to get the hot laps and the drivers meeting for the firecracker this weekend. That was you know hour and fifty minutes as you and I knew it would be. It'd be an hour and a half to two hours. Good luck this weekend, Mark. This will this will air after the firecracker. So if Mark and his team go and sweep the firecracker, forget everything I said about them struggling <laughs> when you listen to this on Monday. So, Mark, th- thank you very much, buddy. I really appreciate it. But no problem. Thank you, guys. If you buy a car, truck, or van, new or used, from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois, you get a free lifetime, that's forever, subscription to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. Literally until you're dead, people, you get this subscription. Check out bombchevybuick.com. That's B-A-U-M, chevybuick.com. They're based just south of my house in the studio here in central Illinois in Clinton. And they also happen to just be... Incredible human beings. I really do love the, the the ladies and the gentlemen over there at Bomb. So if you need a car or truck, new or used, buy it from Bomb, and you get an added benefit of a lifetime subscription to Flow and Dirt on Dirt, and that is very very cool. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Richards for nearly two hours. I don't have a lot to add after that interview. Mark was really good. He was as good as I'd hoped he'd be. Uh, if I ever really got to interview him, which I feel like I did, another one of those where I could do a part one, part two, part three, and maybe we will one day. Uh, I got more questions I could ask him, but I appreciate how candid he was about things. Uh, he's the mayor of the sport for a reason. Listen, Mark can get off on a tangent about some things, which I'm sure you heard in that interview, uh, but by and large, it was it was awesome content. Uh, the Rigsby Report will be back in a few weeks. In the meantime, enjoy your summer. Uh, let's not forget one year ago, 2020 was a damn mess, and we had crown jewels and more getting canceled left and right. We don't have that problem this year, so get out there and enjoy it. It's going to be a really fun summer of racing. See you guys in a few weeks. Um, by the way, you know I think that my next guest, I, I think I might have to be John Gill. The modern-day cowboy was my childhood hero. I haven't talked to him yet. He's, a, he's an awesome interview. He's really interesting. I think I might get John on next. Um, and by the way, not a lot of other networks do this. But I'm going to do it now. Um, you know, watch a lot of racing. Check out Flow Racing. Check out everything live. But if you want to watch the Hell Tour or an Outlaws race, check out Dirt Vision. If you want to watch a Lucas race, check out Mav TV+. Plus. If you want to watch a USMTS modified race, check out Racing Dirt, right? We're friends of everybody. We're not, uh, you know, we, yes, we compete with folks. But, you know, damn it, watch racing. Dirt Vision, Mav TV+, Plus, Racing Dirt. Check it all out, man. It's all out there. We'll see you guys in a few weeks, likely with John Gill. Maybe, maybe not. Let you know. Thanks. Thanks.